Our topic, Judaism versus Biblical Christianity, part two. We're looking at the Pharisee and the tax collector, and we're using this occasion to go in depth on theology here and compare uh, two very different systems of salvation. Uh, one of which is salvation by works, which is pretty much popular all over the world, and then there's salvation by Jesus Christ, grace and mercy of God, and uh, radically different. I'm going to read from 18. <clears throat> Nine to fourteen, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray: one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself: God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. <coughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> Now, we're in the midst, this is part two, and we're in the midst of looking some of the reasons that modern Jews, and we're not talking about atheist Jews or reformed Jews or totally liberal, but conservative Jews, believe in salvation by works. Some of the passages that are cited as evidence of work salvation by Jewish apologists are as follows. And years ago, somebody gave me a 20-tape series. There's an Orthodox Jewish guy. He's the Greg Bonson of Orthodox Jews, and he goes all over the country supposedly refuting Christianity. So uh, a lot of these proof texts I got from him. Proverbs 10.2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. Here's another one, Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now the context of these passages, as well as the analogy of Scripture, makes it very clear that what is being talked about are covenant blessings, earthly blessings, and curses are in view. <clears throat> Note the example of Proverbs 11.3. Listen very carefully. The integrity of the upright will guide them. In other words, it will teach them the correct, wise manner of life. But the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. It's talking about, it's written to Jews, talking about covenant blessings and covenant curses. Proverbs 11, 5-6. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. But the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them. But the unfaithful will be taken by their own lust. Once again, clearly talking about this life. It's not saying you can gain eternal life by being righteous. It's not saying that at all. The covenant law given to the Jews 
was designed to show them the path of blessing in the land. It also revealed how a saved people should live to continue in fellowship that is a covenant relationship akin to marriage with an infinitely holy and righteous God. <clears throat> Remember, the Ten Commandments are given after salvation. The fact that the law contains a required regular system of blood sacrifices to remove sin is proof positive that regular, a required regular system of blood sacrifices um, <clears throat> is proof positive that good works and charity cannot remove guilt. If they could remove guilt, why would God have blood sacrifices? Why would God tell them that I've given you blood to remove sin? They don't need. They wouldn't need blood. And modern Judaism says that they, you don't really need blood. That's just one way of getting rid of guilt. <clears throat> if good works were alone, all that was needed for salvation, then why did righteous Abel, Noah, Job, Abraham, Moses, and David need blood sacrifices, and they're called righteous. Okay, the word righteous is used in two senses. There's the righteousness of sanctification, which is imperfect, where you're an upright person, yet you still sin and you pray for forgiveness, and then there's the righteous needed for eternal life, which is absolute perfection. They're two different things. They needed to look to the perfect <clears throat> Savior to come, Jesus Christ, through the types because saying you are sorry and living a better life cannot remove guilt. The truth is that blood atonement is a scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Old Testament. After Adam and Eve sinned and, be they, and became conscious that because of their guilt, their nakedness was now unacceptable, God promised a coming Redeemer, Genesis 3.15, and then God slew animals to provide a covering for them, Genesis 3.21. Why didn't God just tell Adam and Eve to be sorry? If repentance was all that was needed, why was a redeemer necessary, a blood sacrifice necessary? The promise in Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangel because it contains the first general promise of the Messiah's victory in our place. Thus we see a person in the seat of the woman suffering in the, predict <coughs> in the prediction that his heel would be bruised and victory and that he would bruise the serpent's head. And these merely general outlines, they're prophetic, are wonderfully fulfilled uh, up in the book of Psalms. The person is now the son of David. Well, like the sufferings and victory are sketched in vivid detail in Psalms 22, 35, 69, and 102. Uh, also Psalms 2, 72, 89, 110, 118. Not to speak of other innumerable passages, including uh, Psalm 53. The chief passage for salvation by works in Paul's day was Leviticus 18.5. And if you read it out of context, and you just have a very superficial reading of Scripture, it, you, I could see how people would mistake this for salvation by works. Listen to what it says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And the Jewish, and the, the Jewish um, <clears throat> targums, which are 
go back 2,000 years, the Jewish Targums say the eternal life there. So they interpret this as that you gain eternal life by keeping the law. But that's not what it says. The Targums add with the life of eternity. So if you keep my statutes and my judgments, which if man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. According to the Pharisaical Jews, the Mosaic Law is a merit covenant teaching the people to earn heaven through personal righteousness. That's how it's interpreted. And that's how it was interpreted in Paul's day. Thus, Paul deals with this passage in Romans. That this passage <clears throat> is really speaking of sanctification and the blessings of covenant obedience for a good blessed life on earth is demonstrated by the following observations. Number one, as noted, the Mosaic Law, especially the book of Leviticus, a whole book dedicated to sacrificial rituals, teaches that only the sacrificial blood of a spotless, clean victim eliminates guilt. It's explicitly taught in the Old Testament. That's why they had sacrifices. And they had to do it for the whole nation of Israel once a year, the Day of Atonement. Why? And it says specifically, because of the sins of the people. And the, the sacrifice applied to the priest, it applied to the king, it applied to everybody. <clears throat> Number two, Abraham had already been justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Genesis 15, 6. Yes, salvation by grace through faith alone is taught in the Old Testament. Number three, all the righteous saints of the Old Testament had to offer blood sacrifices for their sins. We've noted this briefly. If sacrificial blood was unnecessary and good works could remove sin, then the universal requirement of the blood sacrifice of a clean animal without spot or blemish makes no sense whatsoever. Makes no sense whatsoever. What's the point? Say you're sorry, turn over a new leaf, be better, and God will forgive you. There's absolutely no need of the whole temple. The whole temple system is unnecessary. <clears throat> By the way, um, see Genesis 8, 20-21 and 9-4 for Noah, who is called a righteous man by God. Noah offered sacrifices repeatedly. Yet he's called a righteous man. It, it means he was a sanctified, godly man. It doesn't mean he was a sinless man. Genesis 12, 7, 13, 7, and 18, 15, 8-10 for Abraham. Offered sacri blood sacrifices and burnt offerings repeatedly. Why? He was a sinner. And according to the Talmud, he was, he was so sinless and he was so great that uh, his merits can help Jews go to heaven. Abraham's merits. Sounds like Romanism. But he lied about his wife to Pharaoh. He wasn't a sinless man. Exodus 3.18, 12.4-13, and 23 for Israel. They needed to offer sacrifices for their sins. The Bible is clear. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. <clears throat> and just briefly here, one of the passages most often cited by Jewish apologists for atonement through good works is Daniel 4.27. Because of the Jewish interpretation of this passage is based on an incorrect translation from the Hebrew into English, we will quote, 
the Jewish Publication Society translation, 1982, and the King James Version. And the Jewish Publication Society of 1982, that's put out by the very conservative, the Orthodox Jews. And, and keep in mind, their the numbering is a little different. Daniel 424, Jewish Publication Society. They have slightly different numbering in Daniel than Christian versions. Okay. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. That's Daniel 4.27. Now, for some reason, Jewish translators have ignored the Masoretic text, which is the original Hebrew, which says, break off. <coughs> and have instead followed the uh, Greek Septuagint version, redeem. And the Greek translation is not inspired. Now, if it's quoted by Christ of the Apostles, then we can take that quote as inspired, for it's a faithful translation. But there are lots of mistakes in the Jewish, uh, in the Greek Septuagint. And that was translated by 70 scholars. That's why it's called the 70. Uh, what was it, 200 BC or so? So for some reason, Jewish translators ignored the Masoretic text and followed the Greek Septuagint. Hebrew scholar E.J. Young writes, quote, It is a gross perversion of the text to force it to teach salvation by the merit of good works. Jerome, who gave us the Roman Catholic Latin Vulgate, gave a classic expression to the false view. Here's the Latin Vulgate. And redeem thy sins by almsgiving. And thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps God will ignore thy sins. So the Roman Catholics and the Jews, the Pharisees, or the stepchildren of the Pharisees, have a false translation of this passage. This translation, however, is totally inaccurate. The verb does not mean to redeem. The translation to redeem occurs in the Greek Septuagint and is adopted by many. The Syriac. Then he gives a name of a, a number of scholars. But the meaning of, of to redeem is not original, but is one that came later to be attached to the verb. The correct meaning is to break off, cast away. If the king is to have a lengthening of prosperity, he must give up his injustice and cruelty to the poor and must practice righteousness and mercy. End of quote. Once again, covenant faithfulness, obedience brings earthly prosperity. All these prosperity preachers that talk about, you give me money, give me your seed faith money and all, you'll get rich. Give to me and God will give to you. All these heretics. The Bible teaches if you want earthly prosperity, be sanctified, be godly, live a holy life, be faithful to your wife, follow Christian economics, etc., etc. That's how you have prosperity. Not through giving some heretic a bunch of money. Daniel 4.27 does not deal with the expiation of sins. It speaks of the relationship between personal obedience and temporal blessings. Number four. All those who teach salvation by works assume, without any evidence at all, that an infinitely holy God and righteous God will accept only a partial obedience. But both Paul, Romans 2, and James 
teach that God will only accept absolute moral perfection, which is impossible for fallen creatures. And Jesus adds that this moral perfection extends not just to your outward acts, but also to your words and even your thoughts. Read Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, where he refutes the Pharisees' view of salvation. And how does he do it? He does it by showing that the law applies to what we say and how we think, not simply to an outward act. There are many men who have not committed physical adultery with another woman, but there are no men who have not had lust in the mind. None. Not one. <clears throat> Number five. Jesus made it very clear that because we are fallen creatures burdened with moral pollution, even our best works are tainted with sin and merit nothing before God. Luke 17.10 and of course Paul in Philippians 3.7-11 where Paul says, he talks about he was the best, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the greatest, most pious of Pharisees, and then he regards it all as rubbish, as excrement that he may own Christ, because Paul knows that it doesn't meet with God's standard. It simply doesn't. We have to make a distinction between the righteousness required for justification before God, which is absolute moral perfection, which only Christ achieved, and the righteousness of sanctification, which is habitual, and it's crucial, and it's covenant faithfulness, and it's important, but it's not perfection. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 6 and 1 John chapter 1 teaches us to pray to have our sins forgiven every day. Every day. If we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. That's what John says. He's writing to Christians when he says that. So we don't merit anything before God. We merit nothing. And of course, one of the reasons that Jewish theologians and expositors, and this really surprised me, is they have an unbiblical view of the fall. They don't believe in, the, they don't believe in original sin, and they don't believe in depravity. They hold essentially to what is called a Pelagian view. Pelagius was a monk who taught that Adam's sin only affected his nature. It didn't affect his posterity, which is contrary to all Orthodox Christians throughout history. Adam's sin affected all mankind and were fallen creatures. We're born with original sin. We're born with a, an innate uh, desire to sin and rebel against God. <clears throat> And therefore, they teach that men can and have fully kept the law of God. Roman Catholics and Jews teach that men have and can fully keep the law of God. They, the Jews say that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, as well as Rachel, all kept the law perfectly. That's what it says in the Talmud. They kept the law perfectly. And if you've read your Old Testament... That is ridiculous. Rachel and Leah were fighting. You know, it, it, it was uh, definitely not a sinless life. And we're told God regarded their perfect obedience so highly that he procured favor for their descendants, the Jews. That's taught in the Talmud. You have to understand that Roman Catholicism... I, I first heard this from Rush Dooney many years ago. Roman Catholicism got a lot of their heresies from Judaism. This idea of 
super irrigation. There are saints that were so godly that God regarded them so much that he blesses all their descendants. So, enough of that. Third. <coughs> By the way, uh, if you want to have more, I have a book on the atonement on reformedonline.com, my website. And I have a very lengthy appendix on Judaism and their view of the atonement on that site. So if you want to hear much more of these kind of passages, go to that. And the third, the Old Testament, just like the New, teaches that a believer's obedience to the law is a result of salvation, not a cause of it. We're saved to follow Christ. Pick up your cross and follow me. Die daily. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. You're a new creature in Christ. Etc. Here's what Solomon says. Proverbs 16.6 In mercy and truth atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord one departs from evil. Atonement? Sanctification. Jewish expositors teach that by acts of charity or loving kindness, one's sins will be purged or expiated. But acts of mercy and charity are also done by atheists and pagans. Are they purged of sin as well? Obviously not. They're not. The idea that God will overlook a whole life of sin and pardon a mountain of debt solely on the basis of a few acts of charity to the poor is a denial of God's holiness, justice, and the immutability of his moral law. And you see this with Roman Catholics. Frank Sinatra dumped his wife. He was a habitual adulterer. He's a womanizer. He had sex orgies and all sorts of stuff. Dumps his wife. Who, that's where he had his children. Marries Ava Gardner. That doesn't work. But he's a fornicator and an adulterer throughout his whole life. And then when he gets old and he's about to die, what does he do? He gets stripped with Roman Catholicism, gives a whole bunch of money to the church. They say a bunch of masses for him. He gives a bunch of money to charity, and then he expects to go to heaven. That is the system of Judaism and Roman Catholicism. Acts of mercy and charity are also done by atheists, and it doesn't purge sin as well. Moreover, the Mosaic Law explicitly teaches that out of his mercy, the Lord provided blood atonement to remove sin and guilt, out of God's mercy. It is by God's truth that he fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus. It is only <coughs> by the Redeemer's sacrificial death that Yahweh's justice is satisfied. Indeed, God shows the deepest hatred of sin in the very act of atonement. He made for it through the death of his Son. The sinner's only hope is Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Jesus had to die on the cross to get rid of guilt, sin and guilt. If God could have saved man without that, he would have. The idea that he just did that for dramatic effect is completely unbiblical. Those who are saved by the blood of Christ are also regenerated by the Holy Spirit and sanctified. They now have a holy reverence and love toward God and thus reject the world, ungodliness, and sinful lusts. 
They habitually obey God's moral law out of love and gratitude for the salvation that God has provided. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Salvation is of the Lord. Exodus 14, 13, 2 Chronicles 20, 17, Psalm 3, 8, Jonah 2, 9. Thus we praise God as the Lord of our salvation. Exodus 15, 2. 1 Samuel 2, 1, 11, 13, 19, 5, 2 Samuel 22, 3, and 36 and 47, 1 Chronicles. Well, I'll stop. There's about 20 passages. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the Old Testament teaching. And then fourth, the Jewish apologists appeal to the many Old Testament passages which appear to downplay or disavow the purpose of sacrifices in favor of good works. And they're, they're doing so as an incorrect twisting of Scripture to justify their heresy. Here's a sample. Hosea 6.6. 6. You've all heard this. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And there are very similar kind of passages in Sam, 1 Samuel 15.14-22, Jeremiah 7.21-23, Micah 6.6-8, Zechariah 7.4-7. So we ask the question about these kind of passages. Is God rejecting the sacrificial system that he instituted? He set up the priesthood. He set up the temple and the tabernacle and temple. He set up all the rituals. Is he rejecting that for charity and good works and law keeping? Is that what these passages are saying? No. Such an idea is totally absurd. These passages in context, when you look at them in context, it becomes clear that Yahweh is condemning an empty ritualism. The Jews were blatantly disobeying God's moral law. They were mistreating orphans and widows. They were stealing, committing adultery. Yet they still believed that their relationship to God was fine if they kept the ceremonial rituals. Now, akin to this, when I went to seminary in Philadelphia back in the 70s, late 70s, and uh, I remember they were having a big mafia war going on and people were getting killed left and right. Scarfo and, and those people were, there was a big war. And these people would go to mass and they would pay to have Roman Catholic funerals. Yet they were murdering people and they were extorting money and ripping people off. It's the same principle, this idea that you can be, you can, you don't have to repent, but you can be saved through rituals. And that's what God is condemning here. The Lord is not rejecting his own appointed offerings, but is coming, condemning those who come to worship him without humility, without acknowledgement of sin and sincere contrition. While our good works and personal repentance from sinful behavior is not the ground of our salvation. True faith in Christ is always accompanied by repentance. If you come to church, you, you, let's say you're committing adultery. You've got a woman on the side, you've got a mistress. And you come to church and you expect God to listen to your prayers and, and accept your worship when you're committing adultery. You're deceived. You have to repent. The apostate Jews, like the Roman Catholics after them, treated the ceremonies as automatic conveyors of grace instead of as symbols to stimulate and focus our faith on Christ. 
They're types. They're meant to point us to Christ and his sacrifice. Obedience to the moral law or covenant faithfulness does not save. But it is evidential of true saving faith. James 2, 14 to 20. And the context of these passages establishes that point very clearly. In chapter 5 of Hosea, we are told that Israel is guilty of harlotry and defiled, verse 3. That they do not know the Lord, verse 4. That Israel and Judah stumble in their iniquity, verse 5. That Jehovah has withdrawn himself from them, verse 6. God is saying that he desires true faith in himself, a faith that leads to godly living far above unbelief, wickedness, and empty ritualism. Now, I was raised a Roman Catholic. And the whole focus of Roman Catholicism is getting that wafer at the end of the service. You get the wafer. And they believe that the wafer works automatically. It saves. They have a very ritualistic view of salvation. Ex opere apparato. It works automatically. Whether you believe or not, whether you've repented or anything. So what do people do? They get that wafer and they go right out the door of the church. They wait. They, they sit through the drudgery of the Roman Catholic worship and the 10-minute the little sermonette by the, the priest. Um, and then they get the wafer and leave. God, through the prophet Isaiah, condemns unbelieving ritualism with even stronger language. He calls the sacrifices of the wicked futile sacrifices, 113. Their incense is an abomination. 113. He hates their feast days, 114. He says, this is verse 13 again, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. In Hosea, God is not condemning the sacrificial system itself, but the abuse of the sacrificial system. And it's the same for Christians. If you think you're going to come to church and pray and sing some psalms, and then you're going to go commit adultery and go out and get drunk and party with a bunch of pagans and snort coke and live like a heathen swine. You've got something coming. God doesn't receive your worship. It's an abomination in his sight. If the general ordinances of religion are practiced without true faith and repentance, then they are worthless. Indeed, they are an abomination. See Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. So we must have genuine faith in God before we engage in church ordinances. Am I saying Christians are sinless? Absolutely not. The first thing we do when we begin public worship is we pray for forgiveness for our sins because we fall short every day. But there's a difference between that and some guy out committing adultery who's got a mistress on the side and he's stealing people, he's ripping people off at work and he's a thief and he's a liar. There's a difference. Covenant faithfulness is not sinful sinlessness. It's a habitual obedience to God's law. And you see that in 1 John, where he talks about, hey, if we say we don't have any sin, we call God a liar. However, he turns around and he says, if we habitually commit sin, we're not regenerate. And we're fooling ourselves. So our brief study of the modern Jewish pharisaical concept of salvation, by their concept of good works and repentance, that is, a moral reformation without faith, in the expiatory sacrifice of the Messiah explains why the Pharisee's prayer is devoid of a confession of sin. He doesn't think he needs to confess his sins. He thinks that he's doing fine. It's devoid of a confession of sin and a plea for mercy and grace. It tells us why the thankfulness is directed at one's own moral achievement and not Jesus Christ and his perfect substitutionary atonement. 
And there's also another deadly defect regarding this prayer. In this section I've called boasting without a biblical self-examination. Boasting. As a Christian, we are ex responsible to continually examine ourselves in the light of God's moral law. Our behavior. Our thinking. The way we talk. In light of God's perfect law. And then we humbly confess our sins to God. The Pharisee, however, boasts about how good he is. And he does so by only comparing himself to the most vile and scandalous of sinners in society. Verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He boasts about his piety and his behavior. Because for him, the essence of true religion that merits eternal life is personal performance or self-righteousness. He does not speak of what God has done for him through the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who had the iniquity of his people placed on him when he was rejected, despised, beaten, wounded, chastised, stricken, afflicted, and smitten by God's just wrath against sin, who is led as a lamb to the slaughter, and it's Isaiah 53, 3-11. And I just want to make a few comments about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and this is the death knell of modern Judaism, describes a man, an individual, not the nation of Israel. That's the modern interpretation. The singular pronoun he is used 21 times. Him or his is used 12 times. He is called a man. God's righteous servant. Many Jewish scholars, the Targum Jonathan and the Jerusalem Targum, prior to the coming of Jesus, he's born around 4 BC, he lived to about 29 AD, Jesus of Nazareth, regarded the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 as the Messiah. That used to be an acceptable interpretation among the Jews who will arise in history. And the prophecy of this coming servant fits Jesus of Nazareth perfectly, both historically and theologically. He appears as a tender twig, as a root out of dry ground, verse 2. This fits earlier prophecy that he came forth as a shoot out of the stock of David, Isaiah 11.1. 1. The Messiah had to be a direct descendant of David. Jesus was a direct descendant on both his father and his mother's side. So you can't say, well... His father had nothing to do with it. He was born of a virgin. Well, his mother was from David's side as well. He will be rejected and despised by his own people, Isaiah 53, 3 and 7. He will suffer and endure great sorrow and affliction, Isaiah 53, 4 to 7. His suffering and death is set forth explicitly as a substitutionary atonement. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of God upon him established peace between God and his people, verse 5. Yahweh will place on him all the iniquities of his people, verse 7. He will endure the penalty for his people's transgressions and pay for it by his own death, verse 8. I mean, to apply that to Israel as a nation, a sinful nation, a rebellious nation, is blasphemous. Because what does the Old Testament say? You have to be sinless to be a substitute. 
He will be an offering for sin, verse 7. He will follow the Father's plan and will justify many, the elect, verse 11. He will be victorious and will conquer spiritually on behalf of his people. Because he poured out his soul into death, he was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many, verse 12. So the text of scripture is crystal clear that the servant born of David, Isaiah 9, 7, and 11, 1, of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew 1, 23, and Luke 1, 27 and following, in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, will take upon himself all the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of God's people, the elect. Isaiah 53, 5, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12. Now, once again, the modern, after Jesus came, the modern view is that this applies to the nation of Israel. That's blasphemous. Is Israel without sin? Is Israel sinless? This idea that Israel died and suffered for the sins of the world? That's insanity. It also speaks of the intercession, verse 12, and rule at God's right hand, verse 12, and see Psalms 2 and 110. The scriptures teach that this Messiah will be both God, Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2, and man. And there are even Jews prior to the coming of Christ who said the Messiah must somehow be God. So before Jesus came in, they rejected Jesus. There were Jewish scholars who interpreted this passage correctly. The evidence in the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who suffered and dies as sacrifice for sin is overwhelming. Only someone who is spiritually blind and in the clutches of Satan would deny it. This idea that it refers to Israel as a nation. It's just simply, it's ridiculous. Did Israel as a nation ascend unto God the Father and intercede for men? Was Israel as a nation sinless and perfect? No. After the Jews rejected Jesus and fully embraced the heresies of the Pharisees, they rejected the interpretation of Isaiah 53, uh, that Isaiah 53 was speaking of the Messiah, and embraced the completely absurd view that Isaiah 53 is speaking of the Jewish nation. <coughs> this interpretation is based on the fact that at times in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as my servant or his servant. That part is true. But the common Jewish interpretation is rendered impossible by the following biblical considerations. Number one, an atoning sacrifice must be spotless, without blemish, sinless, and without its own guilt. Otherwise, it must endure the penalty for its own sins, and it cannot atone for another. That's why the lamb had to be without spot or blemish. If it has, if you have, if it has sins, it has to pay for its own sins. It can't pay for the sins of another. Israel is a sinful, rebellious people, not a sinless, perfect people. The idea that such people can't atone for sins is radically unscriptural. Only Jesus of Nazareth was without sin. John 8, 46, Hebrews 4, 15, Hebrews 7, 26, and also Isaiah 53, 9. Number two, <coughs> Israel in the Old Testament is referred to as God's bride. Israel is a she, not a he. She is not a man, and is not referred to in Scripture as a he or a man or a him. And that's true. Look it up. The church which is God's servant is the bride of Christ. It's not a man. It's a her, metaphorically speaking. Number three, 
If Israel is the suffering servant who atones for sin, then people would have to place their faith in Israel to be justified by God. But Israel cannot be the object of faith because A, as noted, Israel is itself guilty of sin. Most Jews today are not even religious or pious. Most Jews today, over half of the people in Israel are secular Jews. They're cultural Jews. They don't care about religion at all. Less than a quarter of Jews are Orthodox and actually take the Old Testament seriously at all. And then B, if the Jewish doctrines of salvation by good works is true, then there is no reason for Israel to be in atonement for sin anyway. The only interpretation that makes any sense at all, and of course accords with the analogy of Scripture, is the traditional Christian view, and the view of some Christian scholars before the coming of Christ. Now, before one can thank God for a Redeemer from sin, he must first understand that he needs a Savior. He did not thank the Lord for what he received from God, I'm talking about the, the Pharisee, but rather for what he had to offer God. Look how great I am, God. He's not thanking God for salvation. He's thanking God for how great he is. In our Lord's little parable, we encounter Paul's major objections to the doctrine of the Pharisees regarding salvation. One, those justified by works have something to boast about, Romans 4.1. What is he doing? He's boasting. Now, Paul talks about himself in the epistles, and he says, I, I am what I am due to the grace of God. He doesn't take any credit for it. He says it's solely because of God's grace. Two, those justified by works excuse me, <clears throat> those justified by works place God in a debt to their goodness, which is the very opposite of salvation by grace, Romans 4.4. 4. Paul sets up an antithesis between salvation by faith in Christ, who achieves salvation in our place, and salvation by works, which turns salvation into a payment owed. In other words, God, you've got to save me because I'm such a great person. That's the Pharisee. That's Roman Catholicism. Now, both Pharisees and Roman Catholics would say, well, yeah, there's grace involved in that. God helps, but basically God saves those who save themselves. In other words, in the Pharisaical system, salvation is not a gift bestowed due to God's grace received by faith alone, but something God owes those who save themselves. The pharisaical position overturns and denies the biblical governing principle that salvation is only due to God's grace and mercy. It is never something earned or deserved. And here's Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast... Here's an example of a pharisaical prayer written around the time of Jesus. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, that thou hast assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning, and not with those who sit in the street corners. For I rise early, and they arise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah, and they arise early to attend to things of no importance. I weary myself, and they weary themselves. 
I weary myself and gain thereby. Well, they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come while they run toward the pit of destruction. That's from the Talmud. And it's identical. It's identical. And I think that's where the Muslims get their ideas of salvation. It's very similar. The legalist makes three fatal errors. He thinks that God will accept a partial obedience, and he also measures himself by those more wicked than himself. That's easy to do. Note that the Pharisee compares himself to gross scandalous sinners. He's not a robber or extortioner. In other words, he is not a filthy criminal. Yeah, I'm a sinner. You know, I don't I'm not perfect, but I'm not like those mafia guys. He's not like a member of a criminal gang who swindles people and extorts their money. The second word is general and means unjust, unrighteous, or evildoer. This fits with loose description of him as in a class that trusts in themselves that they are that they were righteous. I'm not an evildoer. I'm righteous. He does not need to trust in Jesus Christ because in his mind he does not need a savior. God will accept his works of righteousness as his ticket to heaven. He also claims he's not an adulterer. Now adultery is a serious crime in biblical law that merited the death penalty. It is a crime against the family which is the basic covenantal institution of society. Note that he only focuses on very serious, scandalous sins. He not only does that, but also only on the external application of the law. Now, I've witnessed to a lot of people, there was a guy, uh, somebody in my church asked me to witness to their father, who was a pagan. And this guy would not admit that he's committed any sins at all his whole life. And this guy was old. He was in his 70s. I, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything. I don't need a savior. That was he, he actually said that. And then I remember I was at Temple University passing out tracks and witnessing to people. And a, a guy who was a football player, this guy was huge. He was 6'4", six, six uh, you know, probably weighed 280, 250. And uh, he's all blankety-blankety-blank cursing and swearing at me. I'm not a sinner. <laughs> How dare you call me a sinner? F this and blank, blank, blank. I'm not a sinner. <laughs> But there's a lot of people who think this way. Yeah, there's a lot of people who have not physically committed adultery. There's a lot of people who have never murdered anybody. But God's law is comprehensive. <clears throat> well, he may, it may be true that he's not a robber. Has he also never coveted anything that did not belong to him? Remember the 10th commandment? Don't covet. Don't lust after something that's not yours. So it's a sin to steal, but it's a sin to covet. It's a sin to commit adultery, but it's a sin to lust after another man's wife or anything that is thy neighbor's. Moreover, even though he had never touched another man's wife or a woman who is not his wife, has he ever been had unlawful lust within his mind? Has he ever had any impure, unlawful sexual thoughts? Although he may not be outwardly evil and unrighteous, 
Are his thoughts and words absolutely pure, biblical, and moral 100% of the time, every single day? And the answer is obviously not. It's not true of the best of Christians. The very fact that the Pharisees denied that Christ was the Son of God, the Savior and the Messiah, and constantly opposed him even to the point of lying about him, using false witnesses against him in court, and helping put Jesus to death makes the Pharisees guilty of the very worst form of spiritual adultery. See Hosea 1, 2, and 5, 3. So they're telling us how righteous they are and that they merit eternal life, and they're setting up people to lie against Christ in court. So they're self-deceived, aren't they? Is not lying about one's own spiritual condition to self, others, and God constitute a gross violation of the Eighth Commandment? Were not the Pharisees guilty of murdering the author of life, the worst sin possible, and a sign of complete apostasy? The Pharisees were indeed a brood of deadly poisonous vipers, as Jesus said. They have committed their blatant lies and heresy to, heresies to writing, and have been responsible for sending multitudes of Jews to hell for around 2,000 years. Yeah, I don't buy into this idea. You'll, you'll see this among some Christian scholars. Well, the Pharisees were very righteous. They were very pious. No, they weren't. That's a lie. They didn't have the Spirit of God. The only way to really be righteous is to possess the Spirit of God and do everything out of gratitude for salvation. Ironically, they agree with the thoroughly satanic SS Nazis who placed signs over their slave death camps, Albacht mach free, work sets you free. It's ironic and tragic, and I'm not justifying anything the Germans did. They're totally satanic, and the Jews should be protected from programs and from uh, all these wicked idiots today who are against the Jews. We must all pray for the salvation of the Jews as a people, and we must speak the truth to them in love, even though they hate the truth and despise the sinless Son of God. Now, <clears throat> since Rush Limbaugh died, Rush Limbaugh died a couple of years ago, now I listen to, uh, what's that Jewish guy again? Benjamin Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. And, you know, on politics and stuff, he's great. On economics, he's excellent. But if you've ever heard him talk about Christianity, he's satanic to the very core. Oh, he, he, he talks as though there's not any evidence for Jesus being the Messiah at all. How could you believe that? It's foolishness. Well, he's obviously spiritually blind because there's so much evidence just in the book of Psalms alone. You could, you could read about his whole life in the book of Psalms. He's, he is the the centerpiece, the scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. It's a shame. So we should pray for old Ben Shapiro. I listen to his radio. Yeah, I have his radio show on when I'm footnoting and so forth. In addition, he believes that he can make up for any faults or shortcomings by fulfilling or in some cases even going beyond what God requires in certain areas. The law requires fasting only once a year. Uh, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31 and Numbers 29, 7 or on special extraordinary occasions or unique deliverances Esther 9, 31, Zechariah 7, 3 and 5 and 8, 19 but he fasts twice a week according to tradition it was Monday and prob probably Mondays and Thursdays 
Roman Catholics used to they used to have to fast on Fridays, and then they switched it to you can't have meat on Fridays. So we would have um, pizza with uh, mushrooms and olives, which was delicious, and my parents would get anchovies on it. <clears throat> God's word teaches to tie ten percent of our take-home pay, but the Pharisee gives ties beyond that. The liar required tithing from ceremonial activities, um, excuse me, from commercial activities such as growing wheat, barley, or cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Pharisees gave 10% even from their private gardens. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. They even gave 10% of their private garden. The Jews added thousands of man-made laws to God's law that supposedly fenced the law. These laws that go beyond what God requires are supposed to make sure that the law is kept. But instead, they obscure God's law and focus man's attention on human traditions. Jesus said, They have made the commandment of God of no effect by the traditions, Matthew 15, 6. They regarded the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and... They neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, Matthew 23, 23. They strain out a camel and a gnat and swallow a camel, Matthew 23, 24. Modern, so-called Orthodox Jews will not turn on a light switch on the Sabbath. They won't drive their car because if you drive a car, it's it's a combustion engine. It's, you're starting a fire. <laughs> the Bible forbids starting a fire on the Sabbath because it takes a when you don't have matches and lighter fluid, starting a fire from scratch is a lot of work. But they apply that to all sorts of crazy things. The uh, conservative Jews, which are not as strict as the ultra-Orthodox Jews, allow people to drive on the Sabbath because they said, well, it's better to be able to drive so you can go to the synagogue. <clears throat> they will not have their shops open on the Sabbath. I mean, excuse me, they will not work in their shops. Um, but they will have their shops open, which practice unnecessary commerce and simple... Uh, they simply fill them with Gentile workers. So you can go to Jewish shops in New York and there's no Jews around at all. They just have the pagans break the Sabbath. That's real biblical, isn't it? <laughs> That's why we're not supposed to go shopping on the Sabbath. We're not supposed to go out to dinner on the Sabbath or eat on the Sabbath. And you only buy gas on the Sabbath if you absolutely have to because you're making somebody sin. You're helping them sin. You're contributing to sin. A system of self-salvation results in a focus on self, autonomous laws, self-praise, pride, and boasting. The Jewish religious authorities claim that their thousands of legalistic man-made traditions are an oral tradition given to Moses. But not only is there not a shred of biblical evidence for this assertion, their additions, as we've noted, often contradict the Word of God, and they contradict each other. The, the, the Talmud, if you go through it and study it, Gary North did this years ago, and he put out a book just showing all the absurd, blasphemous, wicked things in the Talmud. There's lots of them. But I think we'll stop there. I've, I've got to the plate. Um, or I'll just finish this one paragraph, and then next week we'll look at the, uh, the tax collector. Like the heretical apostate Roman Catholic Church, Judaism holds to works of supererogation. They supposedly can go beyond God's law and counteract past sins with self-righteousness. Never are men more blind, foolish, and hopeless when they are not sensible of their own sin and guilt. The most prominent and dangerous heresies regarding the doctrine of salvation are all rooted in self-salvation and self-righteousness. Romanism, 
Judaism, Islam, the Unitarian cults, the anti-Jesus-is-God cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all teach salvation by works of righteousness. They all do. And Islam got a lot of their teachings directly from the Talmud. <clears throat> and I think, I think the Jewish Talmud influenced Roman Catholicism as well. Men will not flee to Christ in the bloody cross if they do not first perceive their wickedness and hopelessness in God's sight. Men will not trust in Jesus and his redemption when they think that they are good and worthy to come before God on their own achievements. And we'll end there. I got a little comment about Islam, but I, I'll, I'll save it for next week, and then we'll start the, uh, the prayer of the publican, the tax collector, which is wonderful. So I hope you're learning. Now, I understand that the natural reaction of fallen men is to think that they must do something to be saved. But when you're a sinner, you have a sinful heart, and you have a sinful record. You have to go to Christ. You can't get rid of the sinful record. There's nothing you can do. The idea that, you know, Mormons teach that you, if you die a bloody, horrible death, that will eliminate your guilt. No, it doesn't. It doesn't eliminate it. Only Christ can eliminate it. But we'll look at this more next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we're saved solely by grace through faith in Christ alone. For we have nothing of ourselves to offer you. Our good works are worthless in your sight. They're, they don't contribute anything to our salvation. <clears throat> so we thank you, Lord, for your dear son, Jesus Christ. His sinless life reckoned to our account. His sacrificial death on the cross, whereby our sins are imputed or reckoned to his account on the cross. He eliminates the guilt of sin. He eliminates the penalty of sin. And then he imputes his perfect righteousness to us. And therefore, when we stand before you on the day of judgment, you do not see our sins. You see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.